0: Uh, <coughs> we're, we're moving on now with our series here of uh, Abraham, Now I'm going to talk to you. But before I get there, let me rehash one thing from last week for those of you who maybe weren't here and for those of you who forgot. Um, so last week, we had this great moment in, in uh, Abraham's life where he comes to God, and God speaks to him in a vision, and God gives him a covenant. We talked about why that was important, and the cool thing about the covenant was God's the only one who goes through it. He lets Abraham watch. So, so the covenant is between God and himself. It's like the covenant is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Abraham gets to watch. So he's basically saying, this is all dependent upon me. And he reiterates the fact that he's going to have uh, something coming from Abraham's own flesh and Sarah's flesh that's going to b- be the start of a great nation. He reiterates that. He goes into a lot more detail as well. But he reiterates that. So this was really kind of a, what we would call, I think, Mountaintop experience. Have you heard this expression? A mountaintop experience. Somebody's been Christian for a while. You've had these mountaintop experiences, and that's something we used to say. Boy, just this, just this moment, I really felt like God was right there. Yeah, I could almost reach out and touch Him, and and it just felt like He was surrounding me. Maybe maybe I felt His comfort. Maybe I felt His peace. Maybe I felt Him speak to me. But there's this mountaintop experience, and um, we always kind of want more of those because they're cool. They're really cool when we have a mountaintop experience. But here's something that I think we need uh, to understand, and that is this Uh, mountaintop experience today will not guarantee a good experience tomorrow. And I know this isn't popular teaching, Uh, it's probably why we don't have 5,000 people coming to my church because I preach things like this. Uh, But it's really true because there seems to be a, a great group of people who believe that we can reach this level of spirituality where you're just knocking it out of the park, you you're just killing it. And you just move from mountaintop to mountaintop. And you have this, this faith that has grown in you, and you're this mature Christian, and you'll just be walking through victory. And, and you're so close to God. Even if troubles happen, it's okay because you have never losing this faith. You've got God, like, has you in his palm of his hand, and you feel it, and you're there. Here, here's my only problem with that is I don't see it in the Bible anywhere. I mean, anywhere. Everybody I see in the Bible has these moments of great faith and then moments of dastardly cowardless cowardness. I mean it, it's it's amazing to me and is, we're going to be talking about Abraham today, but it's not just Abraham, David. David does it. You know, he goes from, you know, killing a, a giant to running for his life and okay, well that was just circumstances that happened to him. But he also goes from uniting the kingdom and building and, and coming up with this idea to build a temple to, you know, committing adultery and, and murdering a man. I mean, it's just amazing what we see in the Bible and, and I think uh, two things about that. First of all, I think it's absolutely wonderful that the Bible doesn't brush up the PR of all these people. It's like, these are who, you know, these who are Bible heroes and God's honest about them. Here's who they were. You know, here's who David was. He was a great man, a man after God's own heart, and he achieved greatly and he failed greatly. And here's Abraham, same thing. He's a picture of faith. He's literally our picture of faith. And we're going to see him do some very unfaithful things throughout his entire life. And, you know, we'll see this throughout, throughout everything. And I think that's for a reason, because God's trying to encourage us that it's okay. It's all right if you screw up a little bit. Your making mistakes will not disqualify you from God's service, which is a really good thing for those of us who've made a lot of mistakes. But not only is this true, uh, there's also this idea that a mountaintop can change your life. It really doesn't. The height of your mountaintop does not determine the depth of the valley. So not only will you go from a mountaintop to maybe a bad experience into what we would call the valley, the opposite of a mountaintop, But just because you're really a really high high mountain doesn't mean you won't plunge all the way to the bottom of the next valley. We like to think, well, we'll we'll have these dips, but they won't be as great. No, they'll sometimes be very very great, because the devil goes after the people who are doing great things for God. You know, he'll double down on you and he'll he'll attack you. And so we have to understand that sometimes that happens. What's important for us to understand is two things. First of all, be on be on a lookout. Just because it happens doesn't mean God wants it to happen. God doesn't want you falling into the valley. Uh, But the other thing is that we understand that the quickest thing we need to do after we screw up is come back. So many times in my own life, when I really screw up badly, I don't even want to talk to God. Because I know I screwed up. I don't want to go back and tell him I screwed up. I don't want to face him again and say, oh, yeah, you told me not to do that. I did it. I don't want to do that. And so I avoid him, which is the worst thing we can do. The, The first thing we should do when we screw up is come back. And that's one thing David had down. He was really good at coming back. And so we have to understand that we, you know, we can't necessarily walk from mountaintop to mountaintop, but we could shorten our valleys if when we realize, realize we screwed up, we come back. Like I said a couple weeks ago, when you're going the wrong way, a step backwards is a step in the right direction. We have to understand, okay, let's, let's, let's back off now. So let me give you first, before we get into um, the, the Abraham text today, which we will get into, I want to give you a little bit of an in-real-life example, and I want to use my life and the life of Spirit Chapel as our kind of cautionary tale this morning. When, uh, and some of this is rehashed for a lot of you. I know a lot of you guys have been here since the beginning, and some of you are good friends of ours, and you know the story. But just let me do a level set, and just in case somebody doesn't know the story. But when we started Spirit Chapel, I, I resisted it for a long time. It was kind of Victoria's idea. But uh, we finally decided to do it. And when I decided to do it, I did it the way I do everything, which is jump in head first. The good news is there is tons and tons and tons of things available today if you want to find a church. If you guys want to start your own church, you can find all kind of people who will help you do it. Uh, w- which is to say they'll sell you things, which will teach you how to do it. Uh, this is just a, a couple, you know, so we have books, bestsellers by the way, best selling books on how to do it. Uh, an effective plan for church planning. I love it. Seven laws of church planning. I love this one. But my favorite was this. This is a real thing. I don't know if you can read that. It says church in a box. Literally, you buy this thing, and it's got everything you need to start your church. It's in a box. It's like, I don't know, I picture like Wiley Coyote and the Acme boxes, you know, but it's like this is the thing. And, and you open up, and, and you could actually decide what gets put in the box. You, know, you order it, and they, they pack this box up, and they send it to you. And they could do everything. They do sound equipment and everything. They'll do a logo for you. They'll even have your first year sermons already planned for you. Just take them out, you know, has your PowerPoint slides. Like, man, that would be. That'd be great. I wish God would let me get away with that. I can't even re-preach a sermon and do it the same way twice. So, you know, that's just how it works. But I was okay, you know, because I'm like, okay, well, I got, these, I got a detailed blueprint on how to start a church. So I'm okay. Well, the problem is uh, there were kind of the three, you know, cardinal rules is you have to start with enough money. First things first, you have to start with mo- enough money. Now, everybody knows it costs money to start a church, but you're supposed to also have either in the bank or promised by what we call founders... Enough money to pay the pastor's salary for a year. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, for a whole year. Because the idea is it's going to take the pastor at least a year to kind of get, you know, his feet under him and stuff. And, and you don't want him working other jobs because that distracts him from the church. So you want to be able to do that. So, um, you know, we're kind of looking at that. You know, I was looking at that part of the, the plan. I'm like, Victoria, how much money do we have? After we're done paying for the first month's rent plus security deposit plus we had to pay security deposit for everything, but, you know, they made us pay for gas, for electric, all that, you know, because we're this new, new entity. How much money are we going to have? And you know, what kind? She's doing figure, figuring. She says, well, about five hundred dollars. And Like, oh, five hundred dollars, you know? No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's okay because the um, the the pastor's not going to draw a salary, so that makes it <laughs> easier on us. We don't need all that money. Five hundred dollars will be enough. We'll start with $500. We, by the way, said that we would not go into debt. That was kind of one of our rules of thumb. And we didn't. We didn't, we didn't take out a loan or anything. The only thing we came close to going into debt for was this equipment you see hanging on the walls. Uh, staffs purchased on an interest-free credit card from Guitar Center. And uh, the thinking was that the church failed. He'd just have the coolest stereo system in his house ever. So that, that, that was it. That was as close as we came to debt. But, you know, we paid that off in the two-year that we had on it. We didn't pay any interest on it. And that was it. We've never gone into debt. That was part of the rules. We, we, we're not going to do that. So uh, the second thing they tell you uh, is you have to start with enough people. Now, what they mean by that is 50 to 60. And here's why. It takes two years for a church to get going, typically speaking. Because the first year, you have to get the word out. And then the second year, everybody's waiting to see if you're going to fold. Because most churches fail in the first two years. And so, you know, you need enough people. Now, in that two-year period, half your church is going to leave. And that's statistically you know, how it works out. People get tired waiting. Oh, this church doesn't go anywhere. Pfft, they're out the door. Now, you'll get other people to join in. You know, that's the good news. But the original people that you have, half are going to leave. And then you'll get more people to join in. And then that'll be your nucleus in year three to really get moving. You know, that's kind of how the church model goes so we need to start with enough people so how many people did we start with you know again counting heads here we like to say we start with four families because that sounds good but we're actually counting stas as a family there even though he was literally living with us at the time so you know, it was long before he got married <laughs> so um anyway didn't even have a girlfriend when this happened so we, we count up everybody you know, and you can count them up <laughs> on 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 my fingers and still have some left over because it turns out we started this church with seven people seven No, it'll be fine. That'll be fine. It's okay. It'll be fine for us to have seven because here was why. We were convinced, this is really funny for me to say this now, we were convinced that this this township was starving for a a non-denominational church. There wasn't one. There hadn't been a non-denominational church start here in 30 years. So we're going to be that. You know, it's going to be you know, once we open the door, you know, everybody's going to be flooding their way here. You know, this is Katie bar the door. They're going to find out we're non-denominational church. People are going to come in droves. If you build it, they will come. Ha 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 ha. That's really really funny because it turns out no one was looking for a church. Who knew? There was like like maybe eight of you, but that was it. Most of the people were in a church or they didn't go to church. That was kind of what we found. And so, uh, but that's what we thought. We thought, well, we'll open it up and everybody will come. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Rule number three. If you're going to start a modern church, and this one's really, really important, get a band. Worship group, get a band. I literally had a church planner tell me, I'm not kidding you, you can ask Victoria, this is a true statement. He said, What you need to start a church is a band and enough parking. That's it. Preaching, I guess, and this was a preacher who told me this preaching, I guess, doesn't matter. All you need is a good band, a really good band, and enough parking to put them and you will have a successful church. That was what we were told. Uh, and so you have to have a band. And, and so this was the problem, because I didn't have a band. <laughs> Not that I don't have a band. I mean, you know, we looked around our seven people. That wasn't enough to make a band. We didn't have enough musical talent there amongst our seven. <laughs> and I kept praying for somebody to show up, you know, and nobody showed up. And so I thought, well, okay, forget the band. Give me a worship leader. Give me one good worship leader who can play the guitar. You know, nothing. You know, how about castanets and a bongo? Anything at all, you know, something. Can we do this? And like, no, there is no band showing up. And that's what made me nervous. No, I guess it won't be all right after all. It's a bit late for that kind of thing, you blank-faced simpleton. So this is where I was. I was like, okay, I've got nothing here. I got no band. And now I'm worried. The other stuff wasn't worrying me. But for some reason, the band would actually, no kidding, keep me up at night. And this one time, I was uh, literally um, in, in bed, and I was having a dream, this is before we opened, of the first night of, or the first day of Spirit Chapel. And in the, in the dream, it was not going well, by the way, not at all. It didn't go great the first time, but it was, this was worse. And I was really nervous because we didn't have a band. You know, there came a time for the you know, worship to start, and nothing played, and all the people looking around, like, what's going on? And I woke up, like, literally in, like, this cold sweat. I'm like, oh, man, we don't have a band. We don't have a worship leader. We got nothing. And uh, I'm like, God, what am I going to do? I, I, I thought you'd send me somebody. I don't have anybody. And actually, in that, n- t- in that moment, God actually spoke to me. And this is what I would call uh, the inner voice that he gives, like, when he kind of takes over my thoughts. And uh, what he said, I'll never forget, uh, because it was both comforting and alarming at the same time. What he said first of all was this: Doesn't matter. The people are not going to come to Spirit Chapel for the music. Oh, hallelujah! Praise the Lord, because we ain't got no music. So that's good to know, you know. And it's like, okay, good, good, good. The people aren't going to come. And but God went on, and He went said this: People are not going to come to Spirit Chapel for the preaching. And okay. uh if thanks, I guess. You know, I'm not sure what to do with that exactly. But, you know, that does kind of leave the next question, which I'm not, you know, asking, well, what are they coming for? They're not coming for the worship. They're not coming for the, preacher, the preaching. What are they coming for? And he said this. He said, the people will come for the blessing. And I'll never forget this because I actually started weeping in bed. I was, I was like lying there, just crying my eyes out. And I get up and I wipe my eyes, you know, and I go write this down because I didn't want to forget it. And I thought, what is he talking about? The blessing. I don't even know what that is. You know, because in the church there is a thing called the blessing, right? Um, it's in the Protestant, and this is the Catholic Church. But they actually do the holy water, and that's a blessing. In the in a Protestant church, it's what the pr- preacher says before he sends you out. Also, sometimes called the benediction. Well, if you break the word benediction down, bena means good, and diction means word spoken. So it's basically a blessing. So that's what it was. I'm like, okay. So apparently, God's going to give me this amazingly spirit-filled benediction. That i'm going to give to people before they go out there and it's going to change their lives you know because i didn't know what else he was talking about what does he mean by that uh and those of you who came here in the early days you'll you'll maybe remember this i didn't give a benediction for like the first year and a half of spirit chapel and the reason was i kept waiting for god to give me the blessing that was going to bless everybody now i realized that wasn't what he was referring to but for the longest time they were like, i can not give a blessing god hasn't given it to me yet I'm, I'm still waiting for that you know uh so so now what so, so now I'm sitting there thinking, well, if God told me this, that means he has a plan, and he has a plan to bless the people through Spirit Chapel, so at least we're on the right track. I just don't know the details yet. I don't know the deets. Uh, so I'm thinking, okay, well, we'll, we'll wait um, until he gives them to you, and, and he never really did, you know. Uh, somewhere along the way, I'd walk away from all the planning books, you know, as those of you know this, and uh, God you know, really kind of took me to a whole new place, and I started looking for a different kind of church than I thought I was, that I, was, I was founding, which is fine. But at some point, you know, I'm thinking, if we're going to get onto this blessing part, we kind of need our own building. And we signed a five-year lease here. So I'm figuring year six, you know, God's going to bring us a new building. And the reason why is, of course, we signed a five-year lease here. I gotta tell you something by the way god doesn't care about five-year leases just so you know uh you don't impress god by saying well my lease is almost up lord because it doesn't matter to him you know he he really kind of works in different in different way and so i was absolutely convinced and then when we had an opportunity to maybe move into the boston presbyterian church when they closed down uh and that was actually happening right at the time that our lease was up i said here this must be god has to be my lease is up here's a building let's go hallelujah praise the lord the door gets shut what are you doing god my lease is up. Well, it turns out it doesn't matter my lease is up. You'll notice we haven't had that lease for a while. It doesn't matter. The guy who owns the building says, you guys can stay as long as you want. You know? So I have no pressure at all to leave, which is actually a bad thing, because now I've got nothing to wail at God about. Because I'm saying, God, my lease is up. Because so what? You can stay as long as you want. You know? God knows what he said. And so I go, okay. But I still need a new building. I need a new building because I got to put everybody together. And if you're going to bless us, we kind of need our own place. We really do. And this is really funny when we come to God with not only our problems, but our solution. Here's my problem, God. And here's my solution. Put those together for me, would you? And God's like, uh, yeah, I don't need your solution. I'm God. And, and so what happens next is, well, okay, it must not be there. And, oh, I get it now. In our seventh year, we're going to move in our new building. Because seven is an important number in the Bible. That's a true statement, too. But you know what? So is 10. And I don't even want to think about this. So is 40. So, uh, you know, when I'm trying to convince God, God, it's seven, seven, seven is, well, about 10 or 40. How about one of those? No, I really don't want to hear about 40. You know, how about about seven? And so as I'm praying for it, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. It, It occurs to me we have kind of three choices here. If you believe God has spoken to you, but what he has spoken has not yet happened. And maybe, maybe you get to live a life where this doesn't happen. But this is my life. All right, this happens all the time. Even when I feel like God's spoken to me, it doesn't happen like I think it's going to. Right? And you are waiting. You have three choices. And this isn't theological. This is logical. I'm going to give you. There's actually three choices. One is you decide he never did speak. I must, have, I must have not heard him right. That must not have been God. He never spoke to me with this. I must be wrong. And there are a lot of Christians who actually have just taken that tack. So, okay, I guess God doesn't. St- in fact, they go further. Not only did God didn't speak to me, God didn't speak to anybody. Because it makes them feel better to know they're not alone. And so, okay, I guess God just didn't speak. Uh, that's, that's one choice. You can say, well, I guess that wasn't God. Choice two is, in and in, in, you know, if you really honestly feel God spoke to me and then maybe you change your mind, that may be God's telling you I didn't say that. Because I get it wrong sometimes, too. But number two is, um, I have to wait for him to do it. Just wait. And every time I hear that, wait upon the Lord, I think about that scene from Princess Bride between Inigo Montoya and the man in black. goes like this. But I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. I hate waiting. Me too. Me too. I hate waiting. It's one of my least favorite. I would rather, I know this is going to, I'm saying this in presence of my wife. This is dangerous. I'd rather work hard than wait. Because at least I'm doing something, you know? At least I'm doing something. I don't mind working hard. Again, I'm saying this for my wife. It's dangerous. But I don't mind working hard. What I mind is waiting. I hate waiting. Because I'm wondering, well, should I be here? Should I be standing there? What do I do with my hands? What do, what do you do while you're waiting, right? Wait upon the Lord. And here's the problem is, um, and before we, this happened to us before we started Spirit Chapel. Before we made the decision to start Spirit Chapel, we're kind of like, maybe we'll do this, but it seems like a weird idea. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And I was doing my Bible studies, and every day, Victoria would come in, did God speak to you? God speak to you? And I said, yes. What did he say? He said to wait. Because do you know how many verses there are in the Bible that says, wait upon the Lord? Oh my, there are a lot of them. And I ran into every one of them. During my, during my day of the plains. Uh, you know, One of the famous ones, you'll see half of this verse put on like coffee mugs and stuff, but they like to leave the first part off. Uh, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But all that great stuff, I love this mounting up with wings of eagles. That just sounds so great, right? And renew my strength. Oh, dear Lord, renew my strength. I love to have that idea but it starts by waiting upon the Lord. First things first, wait upon the Lord. And I'm like, you know what? I think there should be some kind of a fast pass to God's e-ticket ride. I mean, it's, Disney even does that now. You know, you can go there, you can pay extra. I'll pay extra. Can I tithe 20% God if I get the fast pass? Is there some way? And there are some people would kind of tell you there is, but let me tell you something, there isn't. Wait upon the Lord. It's, it's you know, all throughout. That's the Old Testament. Here's a New Testament reference for you. Here's, here's Paul talking Let us not become weary in doing good. Don't you get something that's worn out? I'm here doing good stuff. They don't care, and I'm tired of it. You ever get tired of doing good stuff? Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The race is won by the one who finishes it, it's by the one who endures into the end. Uh, here's, Here's one from Psalm, jumping back to the Old Testament. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He says it twice. In between there, he's saying, here's how you're going to strengthen your heart. And here's how you're going to get courage. By waiting for the Lord. He, he sandwiches it. That's a sandwich. That's a wait for the Lord sandwich there. And so it's what he's telling you. It's like, you know, here's the thing. I can do this all day. You would not believe how many scriptures there are in the Bible that just go on and on and on and on. Hearing lamentations. Lamentation says, it is good. That one should wait, oh boy, quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly. Oh, now he's amping it up. Now it's even harder. Now I can't even grumble, murmur, and complain. He's telling me to wait quietly for the Lord. I hate that. That's even worse. Here's Psalm Psalm, uh, 62. For God alone, oh my soul, wait. Here it comes again, in silence. For my hope is from him. One more. I mean, seriously, I could do this. I could do a whole sermon on this and just like read scriptures. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And sometimes we look at the evildoers and think they're getting ahead. But what God says is, no, my inheritance will go to the one who waits. But God, do you not see the problem that I'm in here? And that if you would just step in now instead of waiting, I'll wait later. How about that? But again, like I've always said, the infinite God is never out of time. He just works on a different clock than we do. And he doesn't care about a five-year thing. And, and we go and we tell him all the reasons why he has to act now. He's not, you know, you can't sell God the Ginsu knives. If you act before midnight tonight, God, I'll throw in. No, that's not how it works. Okay, so your three choices. First of all, you could just say, well, I guess he didn't talk to me. Choice number two, you could say, okay, he did talk to me. And since he hasn't told me what to do and he hasn't done it yet, I will sit here and I will wait. <laughs> in other words, you, you could put it this way until he tells you what to do just keep doing what you're doing because if you veered off his course he's going to put you back on you know if he hasn't told you to move back because you moved out of his will what you're doing is pleasing him what abraham was doing pleased god he was doing exactly what god wanted him to this is sometimes hard for us to get if god went quiet it must be something i did wrong no not always if if i haven't gotten it, yet, it must be something i did wrong no not always sometimes he just wants you to be still and wait upon the lord because this whole thing you understand is about a friendship with god you know it's just can we just spend some time together can we just because later on things are gonna get really busy and you're going and we won't get to spend any time together at all can we just please spend some time together there's something in your life that you feel like that you know Every time you know that you get together with them, you always have to go out and do something. Like, I just want to hang out with you a little bit. Can we just do that? I don't want to go rushing off and do something else. Let's just hang out. I just want to spend time with you. That's what God's saying. I just want to spend time with you. But if you're not willing to do that, you have option number three. Let's help God out a little bit then. <laughs> I know what he wants. He told me. And he's a little bit slow on it, but he's busy. A lot of other things going on. Let me help him out. I'll just go ahead and do it. And it's like, well, you know, that's not Christian. We know that. Yeah, we, we know that. So, so we learn how to phrase it better than that. Because if you have spent any time in church at all, you know how to put things. In fact, let me put it this way. If the American church has taught us nothing else, it has taught us how to do our will in God's name. We're good at that. Let's do our will in God's name. We'll teach you how to frame it so it looks good to other Christians. Right? So we won't say things like, I'm not going to just do it because God's taken too long. We'll say something like this. Well, God has told me that he wants this for me. And he's put me here in this position. And he's given me all the skills that I need to accomplish it. So I'm just going to go do it. And that's where we get into trouble. And now I'm finally getting back to Genesis. Because this is what happens next. After this great, meaningful time when God spends with his friend Abraham, and he does his covenant and he reaffirms, don't worry, you don't have to be afraid, I'm going to protect you and I will still do everything I promise for you. The next chapter, and we don't know how much time passes, but the next chapter, you'll turn the page in your Bible and you go from chapter 15 to chapter 16 and this is what we see. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, had never had any children by him, but she had a female slave from Egypt named Hagar. And she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. That, by the way, is good theology. She knows it's not a coincidence that she has gone her whole life without having children. God's kept her from it. Okay? Uh, so here's what I want you to do go and sleep with my slave. Maybe I can have a family through her. Now, um, what's going to happen here is Abraham's going to make a huge mistake. And hear me out before you all start screaming. The huge mistake is he's going to listen to his wife. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. The reason that's a huge mistake is this. First of all, he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of the family. Second of all, he is the spiritual leader. I mean, we could argue about the place of the wife in today's modern American society, but we cannot argue about the place of Abraham as far as the spiritual leadership goes of his household in that day in Genesis 16. He was unquestionably the leader of the house, the leader and the spiritual leader of that house. In fact, God had spoken to Abraham several times and never to Sarah, at least not that we saw when God came into the covenant, Sarah wasn't there. Abraham was. God has called Abraham. He's the leader. He's the one that has seen the promise firsthand. He saw the covenant made with his own eyes. Sarah didn't have that advantage. She wasn't there. So there's no way now that, she's going to, that she should let her come to him and say, you know what? This isn't working. I don't have any children. Let's do this. There's no way he should accept that. But he's going to. Now, the other reason why he shouldn't accept this is because she's being driven by fear and she's being driven by emotions. Now, there's n- that's perfectly understandable. She's through menopause, folks. She can't have kids. She never could, but she really can't have them now. I understand why she is saying, you know what? I don't, I don't think this is going to work, so we need to help God out. It is Abraham's job to say no. Here's why I give him a little bit of grace, because he won't just have to say no today. He's going to to say no every day. From now until the time God finally fulfills a promise, which in this case is going to be years. I feel for Abraham. I really do. Because that's going to be a hard no, because it's not going to go away. Ten days later, a month later, she's going to come back. Still nothing, Abraham, still nothing. How exactly are we supposed to get this child? I I can see why he would say, okay, let's just do this. But here's the real problem. This whole thing right now is not being driven by God, it's being driven by the devil. She's being driven by emotions, and she's driven by fear. That's not coming from God. Do you know another reason that I know for a fact that this is being driven by the devil? Because the slave girl's from Egypt. You guys remember Egypt, right? Remember when we talked about this back week three, those of you who were here? What happens? Uh, 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 Abraham finally gets to the promised land. He gets to Canaan. He gets there. Then a famine comes into the land. What does Abraham do? Nice place. Got to go. And he rushes off to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was the powerhouse of the area. It was the financially rich area. And that's why he went to Egypt. Which is saying that I'm going to go and have the world take care of my needs instead (laughs) of God's. He screws up. He screws up big time. In fact, his wife ends up in Pharaoh's harem. And it's all over. God has to literally go in with a miracle and save them and pull them out of there. That was Egypt. Egypt was the place that Abraham went when his faith failed. Isn't it interesting? Egypt has just popped up again in the scripture. You think Egypt went away? Egypt didn't go away. It never goes away. The opportunity to let the world take care of your problem for you instead of waiting on God will always be there. But this is clearly coming from the devil. And so he's saying, yeah, you know, that sounds like a good idea to me. And, you know, give Abraham a little pass here too, because his wife just told him, you know, what I want you to do is I want you to go sleep with a younger woman. A lot of men don't get that offer, you know. So she says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go do that, and maybe it'll help out. Now, Abraham has to know this is wrong, because the Bible says when God said, I'm going to give you a son with your wife, it said he believed the Lord And his belief was counted as righteousness. Abraham knows better than this, but he's going to give in. So Abraham agrees to what Sarah proposes. And uh, his wife, Sarah, watch this now, gave him her slave, Hagar, to be his wife. Now that was legal. Polygamy was completely legal. We talked about how he had avoided this for so many years. But this isn't just sleep with her. This is a, she's going to become your wife too. So this is polygamy. This is, both of them are going to be wives. So that's why it could be an heir, because it's actually his wife, and this is a child from his wife, right? So that's what's, that's what, that's what's being offered here. Uh, and th- he'd been there for about 10 years at this point, so he'd be about 85 right now. Then he slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. plan worked. And when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Ha ha, look what I did. Look what I did that you, can kid. <laughs> and in those days, this is even worse than it is today. I mean, even today, if a woman tries to, you know, have a child and can't, it's very, very difficult. But in those days, that was like the, the woman's entire identity. And so now Hagar's like, uh-huh, guess who's the good wife now? I've got the child. And so uh, she, she, she starts despising her. And here's the thing. This little Hagar, the Egyptian slave, is going to despise Sarah, who elevated her from a position of slave? and made her a wife? How about a little bit of gratitude, huh? How about like, you know, saying, yeah, this really worked out for me because now my child's going to have an inheritance that I would have never had. I was a slave before. Now look at me. I'm the wife of an important man here in Canaan. Uh, How about a little bit of gratitude? Listen, don't expect it. Do you think you're highly esteemed by the world when you compromise your values? You're not. Do you think the world's saying, well, that Christian compromised their values, but I really appreciate that about them. (laughs) No, not at all. When we compromise our values, they're not going to look on us with anything other than disdain. Well, you're no better than we are. In fact, you're not as good as I am because I didn't. At least I got a child. You got nothing. And so now, here, uh, the next thing is like almost predictable. Sarah comes to Abraham's. This is all your fault. I love this one. This is all your fault. Remember, I told you that she was being emotional, right? (laughs) You think that all of a sudden she's going to come to her senses now? No. Now, this is all your fault. I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. Now that she knows she's pregnant, she looks down on me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now she's bringing God into it. I know I'm right. God will tell you I'm right. Ask him. He'll decide which one of us is right, you know. And it would have been really great if Abraham says, well, let me go ask him. You know, I'm a friend of his. I'll ask him, right? Uh, but uh, you've got to figure, like, Abraham's sitting there. I don't know what he's doing, you know, whatever Abraham does throughout the day. And all of a sudden, his wife comes in and says, this is all your fault. Because whoa, 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 whoa. Whose idea was this now? How in the world is this fair? How in the world is it fair that you're going to come now and blame me for your idea? I did what you told me to do. How in the world is this? Well, I don't know. As Snape put it, it may have escaped your notice, but life isn't fair. This is how it works. But here's the other thing about it. Abraham abdicated his responsibility as a spiritual leader of his family. When the man abdicates his responsibility as a spiritual leader of the family, the wife will resent him. She will. And and uh, the problem is in America today is that most families I meet and talk to, the woman is the spiritual authority in the house. Because she's gone to the Bible study, she's gone to the retreats, she's gone to church, and the guy goes occasionally. And he's abdicated his role as spiritual authority, and the wife will resent that. Because she knows she needs something she's not getting. And, that, and and this is what happened here. Even though she's angry with him for agreeing with her, somewhere deep down inside, she knows he should have stopped me. It is his fault because he should have stopped it, but he didn't. And and and, and you think he's going to now stand up and be a man? No, he's going to go right back where he was. Hey, she's your slave. She belongs to you. Keep me out of it. You do whatever you want. But she's not her slave. She was given to him as a wife. So now he's failing both wives. So I don't know. You, you do whatever you want with her. Okay. I'm going I'm to sum up here real quick here because I know we're going long and we started late and I apologize for that. I want to break down the mistakes that Sarah made. Because the mistakes Abraham made are real simple. He, he abdicated his authority as a spiritual leader and he should have stood up. He should have stood up for God. That's what he should have done. He's the friend of God. That's how the Bible describes him. Friend of the Lord. Now, His friend was just attacked by his wife and said, he's not going to do it. He should have stood up for his friend. Yes, he will. Listen, I know my friend. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. You weren't there. I understand that. But I saw something that just let me know. This is a covenant and he's going to do it. He should have stood up for his friend. He should have been the spiritual leader that God needed him to be. And he wasn't. So that was his mistake. But I want to show you Sarah's mistakes because this is the mistakes we make. Honestly, this is typically the ones we make. So mistakes were made on both sides, but I'm going to walk through Sarah's mistakes here for a second. Uh, First of all, never try to take what God has said he will give. Never try to take what God has said he will give. He wants to give to you as a gift. If you snatch it out of his hands, it's not a gift. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had a kid, maybe a grandkid, nephew, son, daughter, whatever, and you want to give them a present and they run up and grab it like on Christmas morning? and they start opening it, it's frustrating. I was going to give that to you. I wanted to give it to you, but now I don't want you to even have it. Never try to snatch from God's hand what he has already told you he will give you. The loving Father gives it to you at the right time. Uh, Number two, uh, don't turn to a person to fulfill God's promise. She said, I need to have God's promise fulfilled, and she turned to Hagar to have it done. Don't, don't ever put a person in that position. The person cannot fulfill God's promise. That's not even fair to ask. But God doesn't want you turning to a person. If he said, I'm going to do it, he's going to do it. Period. Trust that the God who said he can do it will do it. That's absolutely positively what the Bible tells us. Third, and this is really, really important, pay attention to the whole promise, not just the part that interests you. See, here's the thing that I realized as I was going back through all the different things starting with that moment when God woke me up at 4.30 in the morning to tell me it's not about the music, it's not about the preaching, it's about my blessing. There have been several times throughout the, the, the time of Spirit Chapel that I've had more things kind of said to me either through other people or through Scripture where God was kind of reinforcing this with me. And it, 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 it ended, or it didn't end, but the last most recent version of it was a few weeks ago and Angela came here with a word from the Lord for the for the Spirit Chapel, those of you who were here that night. And every time he said the same thing, but he never mentioned a building. He did mention an open door, which is probably on a building, but it could just be an opportunity. But if I look at everything God said about this church and this ministry, it's always about the people, always. We don't need to be in a different building to have these people become a blessing to each other in the in township. We don't need to be there. We, we can do this right here, right now. Two or three is all we need gathered together to do that. And so we've been focused. I mean, honestly, I can confess this as a sin before the whole congregation. I've had short-timers disease here for two years now. I don't want to do anything. Because God's going to move us any day now. Says who? Because my lease was up. God's going to move us when he decides it's time to move us. I still believe we're going to get a building. But I don't believe we're supposed to wait for that. I think we're supposed to be who we are, where we are. There's no reason for us to wait. It's all about the people. The people are here. And, you know, we could gather up, and go someplace else. And the people will be there. And the Spirit will be there. And that's all we need. We need to be who we are, where we are. That's what we need to do. What we need to do is stop coming to God and telling him how he needs to solve our problems. Because one of my big reasons why we have to be in one building is of Abraham's room, which is right above us. And those stairs are treacherous. Anyway, the last thing I want is a mother with a baby trying to go up those stairs with ice on them. So I'm telling God, I have to be in my own building, everybody on one roof, so I don't have that situation. And he said, who said there's going to be ice on them? Who sends the snow? Who's in charge of the weather? I I don't know that that's a true statement. I'm coming to God and telling him, based on my understanding of human abilities, this is what we need, and he's saying, I'm God. Stop telling me what to do. The Bible does teach us to bring our burdens to the Lord. In fact, it says, cast your burdens. I mean, like, you don't even have to bring it all the way to him. You can throw him from a distance. You, know, you can throw him as far as you can throw it. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. The Bible does teach us that, but here's something we need to catch. He never asks us for our solutions. He only says, cast your burdens. We need to be who we are, where we are. We need to wait upon the Lord, and we need to say, you know what, God? I'm not going to tell you how to solve my problem. You know know what the problems are. You know what our heart's desire is. In the meantime, we're going to be who we are, where we are. We're going to do what you told us to do, where you put us, and we're going to focus on people, not buildings. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you...